Hi. Welcome to the Legic Show, a podcast that will help you simplify the business ecosystem. Co-hosted by the co-founders of Legic, Ayush and Vishesh. So sit back, relax and enjoy the podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the Legic Show, an amazing podcast where we try to get more amazing people to talk about their journey, their okay. insights, their life and tell us how their journey has been like. So today we have Mr. Suresh Rangarajan with us who is the founder and CEO at Co-Live, India's largest growing co-living community for teenagers. So welcome Suresh to the Legic Show. Thank you. Thank you Vishesh. Uh, thanks uh, Legic for lo- hosting me today. Uh, Suresh, uh, why don't you start telling us something about yourself, you know, how your journey has been like? Yeah, li- life has been absolutely great. Uh, I think uh, uh, I'm one of those entrepreneurs who are, who's in their late uh, 40s. So I've have, uh, had about 25 years plus of work experience before I started this. So I'm one of those uh, entrepreneurs who has got gray hair. So uh, this is just to demonstrate that Startups are not meant only for the mid-20s who are just raw out of college or drop college dropouts. I think there is a large opportunity for people who are experienced, who have gained momentum in their career to look at startup world as an opportunity for themselves. Because obviously, you know, it's not, uh, I keep telling this, I, I did, I've done quasi uh, two startups in the past, uh, been associated with uh, in world's largest online money transfer company called Remit to India. And then with a real estate company uh, uh, by the name Martha. And in both the cases, the experience has been phenomenal, right? I mean, so I keep telling professionals that it is no one ever knows what's your bank balance, but everybody knows what you have achieved in your life. So the resume, the LinkedIn, you know, that's what you take to the grave. You in, You never take money to your grave. So, you know, the experiences that you build, the the uh, professional achievements that you uh, that you actually conquer, that's what actually remains with you. It's like this, right? You you can uh, you no one can take away you know education from you, right? Once you once you learn something, it cannot be taken away from you. Similarly, mm-hmm. you know once once you achieve something, you know no one can take it away from you. Whereas, you know, you, you earn money, you can lose money. But you earn name, hopefully you can never lose name. So that's, that's been my philosophy. I, obviously, you know, I come from a very middle class family uh, with very, very strong, uh, you know, basic guidance and discipline that was provided uh, by my parents. And they always thought that, you know, I would, I would probably come top in the class, top in the school, top in the state, you know, go to a good good uh, company to work and, you know, uh, probably even take up a government job and then retire. But, you know, obviously you need to keep challenging yourself. So, you know, that's that's the pattern that I have always followed. And I think that's that's what people have to challenge themselves. They cannot be, you know, there is an easy path that everybody can take, but, you know, that's not the path uh, that one should be taking all the time. So that's that's broadly the summary, but you know we can go specifics into it, anything that you find interesting. No, that, 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 that sounds amazing, Suresh. So uh, Suresh, why don't you tell us you know, about Remit to India? I saw that you know it has been the world's uh, biggest uh, money supplying company, you know, which transferred money from one country to another. So why don't you tell us you know, about that journey in particular? Yeah, so I, I've said this in some of the uh, past interviews as well. You know, for me, the twist was trying to do something new. I mean, uh, being a champion of doing zero to one gives a lot of kick, right? I've done this three times over when I've come into a company where there has been zero processes, zero revenue, zero employees. The entire kick of, you know, identifying that office space, getting that first employee in place, getting that processes in place, then getting the first customer, then, you know, you personally being involved in getting that first revenue in the sale in place, creating that product, going live, you know, that, that the, the entire satisfaction that one gets out of that is, is just amazing. And I don't think, you know, people who haven't experienced that, uh, they, they, they will not realize what I'm saying. And people who have experienced that will never give up that, 
they will want to keep doing that all over again all the time right you know so uh, you know sometimes people say scaling is boring right uh, you know when you keep scaling uh, you know it is the same thing that you need to replicate all over again every time the processes are set everything is set and you just need to keep replicating but when you're building something then it is interesting every day poses you a different challenge so i, I just want to step back here i joined city bank in 1994 obviously you know uh, uh, my parents were very proud that uh, they didn't know what i was doing in city bank but they were very proud that i used to wear a tie to my office right i mean the very yeah. you know simple things gave a lot of pressure a pleasure to them so uh, you know you you dress up well you go there but you know your learnings are limited because you know i always thought in the first 5 years 10 years in the city in the in the bank i always thought that you know city was actually uh, doing so well because i was contributing but then i had a collarbone fracture and i didn't go to work for about 3 uh, months and nothing happened to the city bank stock prices that's when my realization came that i was just a small fish in a large pond and it didn't matter whether this fish was swimming or it was dying or whether it was in existence at all so that's when i realized that that was my defining moment uh, that was i think in 2001 uh, you know uh, or 2000 and then i realized that you know i had to do something which is very very high impact so that's when my journey started there was this joint venture between city bank and times of india group uh, they were setting up this uh, online money trans uh, online financial services destination we were we were building an online supermarket uh, city was coming in with its tech, uh, with its uh, expertise in uh, financial services we were also partnered with iflex at that point in time and times was bringing in the marketing and uh, uh, branding ability so we got together uh, to put this plan together uh, to launch an online supermarket but these were the times when it was 128 kbps uh, internet in india forget about 10 mbps speed 20 mbps speed that we experienced 20 years later now so this was 20 years ago um, uh, connections were actually poop 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 and it would get disconnected so you know that's how it used to there used to be a dial in tone get connected to the internet it would get disconnected and imagine we had to do an online financial supermarket um, so obviously we were way ahead of our time maybe 5 7 years ahead of our time and we realized that you know india was not yet ready and the only product that actually made sense uh, was the remittance product the online remittance product and uh, you know the this this was the tech boom that was happening all over uh, indians were all over the valley indians were all over the united states in uk in australia all over europe and we believed that there was a great opportunity because they were still sending a lot of money back right most of the money was coming in for family maintenance for investments and the way it used to come i mean today is the day of e wallets i transfer money to vishesh and in the next two seconds you get an alert saying that money is in your account but 20 years ago the only form of money transfer was in the form of a check so you know uh, my customer and nri customer in san francisco or in the bay area would write a check to his father in uh, hyderabad the check would come by usps post uh, it would take about two weeks for the check to reach that father in hyderabad the father in hyderabad would go to his bank which is state bank of india deposit that check state bank of india would bundle all the checks that it collected from all over india send it back to us to do the physical verification and it would take another two weeks for the check to go back and then the money would come back into our nostro account then it would get go back into the it would take anywhere between 5 to 6 weeks there have been umpteen number of cases where people lost their lives you know by the time they got money from their children so i thought there was a great opportunity so there was this great company in the us called paypal um, and paypal was probably one of the fastest growing financial services company at that point in time uh, and i'm sure most of us had built our businesses looking at paypal so paypal would would do an instant money transfer at that point in time for any us to us account using something called ach which is automated clearing house so we said that why can't we do an ach equivalent get money from you know the nri's account in bay area into a new york account and then do a bulk transfer from new york to uh, hyderabad and then distribute it from hyderabad to 
you know, say Kukatpalli or to a Nellur or, a, you know, whichever the town was. So basically, we broke down the entire cash management into smaller pieces and we said that, let's try it out. And obviously, it had a lot of challenges at that point in time. It looks very simple when we now look back and break it down into smaller pieces. But it was hugely successful. So we went on to become world's largest online money transfer service. The only other method in which, you know, people could transfer money was through Western Union. And we gave people like Western Union the, the biggest, you know, uh, sleepless nights because, you know, Remit to India became a household name in NRI community in the US. Uh, we were literally in every part. Uh, we used to transfer money from almost about 25,000 banks in the US. We had got into a network of 25,000 banks in the US. We were delivering in about 1,300 towns in India and we were present only in Mumbai. So it was, I mean... Uh, any venture capitalist uh, dream come true because we had a dollar revenue and a rupee expense model, right? I mean, uh, yeah. and it was absolute pure play internet model. Um, obviously, it had its own challenges because consumer trust was very, very difficult to get. Uh, but uh, keeping that aside, I think it was, it was an amazing journey at that point in time. Uh, uh, but our biggest threat started coming from other banks which would start uh, offering similar kind of service. ICICI Bank, uh, you know, so I was I was the head of this company and uh, as, uh, the president and CEO of this company and ICICI Bank wanted to set this up. They, uh, in fact, copied the name. Uh, we were Remit Digit to India. Uh, ICICI Bank came up with something called Money to India. Same, in the same format, in an orange color. Uh, they, they took away the entire one downs of mine. Obviously, you know, mine was, a, ours was a startup and, you know, they promised brilliant, uh, good future uh, with ICICI Bank and my guys would just hop, jump and uh, leave my office in Mumbai and go and join ICICI Bank office in, uh, in uh, Bombay. And then I realized that this was going to be a huge threat. How am I going to plug this? And then we came up with this idea saying that, okay, we have this brilliant uh, uh, you know, internet engine, we have cracked the operations, we have cracked the technology. How do we go and, you know, plug and play ourselves with other banks? So we went to HDFC Bank, which is the next best, biggest bank. And we told them, listen, you don't need to hire people. You don't need to build all this all over again. Just plug the Remit to India engine. Let it be like the Intel inside. And let's go out and, you know, uh, uh, you know launch HDFC Remit. And, you know, you can actually launch it before ICICI Bank. And, you know, Aditya Puri and his team loved this idea. And so we actually quickly partnered with HDFC Bank, with Axis Bank, with Karnataka Bank, Indian Overseas Bank, uh, Indian Bank. Literally about 20 banks in India had, uh, in the next one year, adopted our technology. We just white-labeled, we just changed the color, and we put it in, onto their website. So if if... if so everybody became internet enabled suddenly. All the banks became internet enabled. They were all using technology. So there was money to India on one side, there was remit to India and all these banks on the other side. So that's that's how we became, beat competition and that's how we became the world's largest money uh, online money transfer company. So that, you know, that's how, you know, I, I would imagine one needs to be like ahead of competition, always keep thinking about what what could go wrong? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. that's where your audit mind starts working. Uh, and then start plugging these uh, uh, loopholes with uh, uh, contra product so that, you know, you can you can go out and establish. Oh, so so that was my journey in Remit That's an amazing example, you know, of, of how business partnerships and ecosystem evolve over the time. So, uh, Suresh, I would, you know, really love to know that when you go about, you know, pitching these things to enterprises, it's, uh, you know, a B2B sale, when we say that, you know, we are making an enterprise sale or an enterprise partnership is a lot more complicated in nature when compared to, you know, individuals, B2C or even the small businesses. So how do you see that, you know, startups who are just starting out should go about doing these enterprise sales or, you know, enterprise partnerships? What's, what's your key, uh, you know, uh, formula for that? Yeah, I, I mean, yes, this is a classical question, right? B2C sales versus B2B sales, right? I mean, it's a very pertinent point. Which path do you take? So B2C sales, you know, sometimes is uh, you need to build trust. You need to have volumes. You need to have scale. So when I did my B2C sales, you need to show people that you can do it yourself, right? You know, my NRI customers were in the US. 
I would stay up in the night, speak to customers, tell them that, listen, this is my personal guarantee. You transfer money, I will transfer it here. Now, when it came to B2B sales, enterprise sales, obviously, you know, that requires a lot more maturity, the way you present yourself. So it again depends on your reliability of your technology, reliability of what you build as a product. You cannot have, so when you're interacting with a direct-to-consumer, you can have probably some blips. But when you're going and pitching it to an enterprise, it is the enterprise's brand reputation which is at risk, right? If HDFC was signing up, you know, Remit to India as its remittance service, it is it was putting on block HDFC's brand reputation at risk. So that's the kind of robust technology, that's the kind of robust operations that you needed to build. And that requires a different skill set. And the other important thing is, you know, people start believing that B2B sales are very, very exciting, right? You, you crack a deal, you get a million dollar, you know, revenue, right? And you keep waiting for it for eight months, nine months, and you always feel that you're almost there. You know, you, you're just going to be at the tip of that. You know, so I always recommend that, you know, you can't be, you can't be focused on that uh, one big deal, right? Even, mm -hmm. even in my current organization, we have a 85, 90% skewed towards B2C sales versus mm -hmm. 10, 15% skewed towards a B2B sales, right? In a co-living, I go out and get my customers directly or through the internet, or I would partner with a college or a university or, you know, a company to say that, listen, you can send your employees to stay with uh, me. In both the cases, the important thing is to have a blend and a mix of both. Otherwise, what happens is you end up thinking that you're going to get that one big deal which will help you, you know, come over for the next two years. And that may not happen at all. Right at the last moment, you might end up with something wrong. Right. I mean, uh, it could be as silly as you know, the counterparty doesn't like your face, right? I mean, mm -hmm. at the end of it, you know, you, you can't, you can't change your, you can't do a makeover there or you can't change your face to please someone else. So it could be as silly as that or as, you know, uh, uh, as worse as somebody who's making the decision knows your competition, they picked up the phone and your competition dropped off your prices to zero to just get in, get an entry. So enterprise sales has to be very, very measured. You have to have a large pipeline before you get into it. And you cannot be just dependent on it. You have to have a right blend of the two. It could be 50-50, it could be 80-20, but you need to have a right blend of it. You can't be dependent on one big deal. Uh, uh, that's, that's a complete wrong strategy. So, uh, Suresh, you know, when we talk about your business, I, I you know, saw that uh, maybe you know, most of them have been bootstrapped. Or are they, you know, venture funded? Sorry? Uh, so when we talk about, you know, your businesses, Artha, Remit to India, or, you know, uh, when we talk about Colib, are they bootstrap businesses or, you know, are they dependent on venture money? I've been fortunate enough in most of my businesses, I've been able to partner with, uh, you know, obviously I started bootstrap, but, you know, most of my businesses have been backed by a family house, uh, a large corporation. Uh, so... Uh, Remit to India was obviously backed by Times of India and Citibank, though it became 100% mm -hmm. Times of India. 100% in the sense, you know, uh, Times of India took over uh, most of it from Citibank. Artha was again, you know, started by me and my, uh, you know, uh, employee friends. Uh, and then it became uh, supported by Times of India Group. And mm -hmm. here again, you know, it's a, it's a nice joint venture that I've struck with uh, one of the largest and leading uh, real estate developers in the country uh, called Salat Puriya Satwa. So, mm -hmm. so every entrepreneur has this really nice uh, path that they can take. They can obviously, you know, take up a venture funded or just have uh, uh, friends and family or then scale up to a PE or then get backed by a family uh, or a larger corporation. Mm -hmm. So these are different paths and each of these investors will take you in a different direction. Right. One needs to be conversant when one needs to be sure about the pros and cons of partnering with each one of them before you scale up into your next level by taking their money. Right. So uh, two most popular things which everybody do, does in the startup world today, either you get venture funded or you partner with a large industrial house. Mm. Uh, venture funded will take you in a different direction where scale is more important than profitability. Whereas a mm. uh, industrial uh, existing brand like a Salarpuria will drive you to 
uh, a combination of profitability at scale and focus on unit economics. One is a very short-term approach. One is a very, very long-term approach. So mm-hmm. one needs to be measured about who you partner with because based on what kind of ambitions that you have as an entrepreneur before taking up you know, a partner, whether it's a venture-funded company or an industrial house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. So, uh, Shreik, you know, uh, when you say that, you know, your businesses relied on partnerships, uh, you know, most of the businesses are in a sense that, you know, they, they partner with the organization, they take, you know, some external money. But what do you think, you know, is going to be the differentiating factor in any kind of venture? That what is the key thing that makes difference and, you know, what is successful and what is not? Yeah, ultimately, there are some key aspects, right? Finally, you know, uh, uh, I strongly believe that you create a great product knowing your customer fully well, it will always sell. So to me, product and, you know, the way you package the product becomes way more important. To me, product, 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 you have to create a consumer-oriented product and then package it so well that the consumer just loves it. Ultimately, after that, everything falls in place, right? You know, your pricing power comes because your product is good and it is packaged well. Your consumer retention happens because your product is strong and you have packaged it so well and because the consumer gets attached to your brand and that's where the retention comes in, right? Ultimately, your employees also feel proud and continue to work with you and don't pop, skip and jump from one company to the other company because you are offering a reliable product because they are not looking at it short term. If, if you were selling a faulty product, Mm-hmm. Three months later, six months later, the sales guys, the operations guys, the customer service guys, they're all going to be in a lot of trouble because mm-hmm. they're all going to be, uh, you know, submerged with queries and problems and issues that they have to face with customers. So the product becomes very important. Packaging becomes more important. That's it. Oh, that, that's an amazing insight. So, uh, Suresh, you know, being a senior entrepreneur, you know, doing, doing a lot of startups at a point, I saw that, you know, your journey started from doing PCOM and CA, which is, you know, a, a very traditional thing when it comes to, you know, startup where we have not seen, you know, many CAs venture into things like this. So how do you differentiate that, you know, uh, what, is, what has been your journey like that, you know, uh, is there any kind of distinction when it comes to, you know, the, doing your academia or is there a particular kind of flow that, you know, flows from one part of your journey in life, you know, the academia, the academic stuff, doing all these studies and then to industry, how, how is the difference like? Yeah, true. I think, you know, uh, it's very unfortunate that, you know, I I come, um, I have not used too much of what my academics has been in the last 25 years. Uh, I've been more a banker, a financial services guy, and then now into uh, internet-based technology and things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, It is, of course, yes, as you rightly said, uh, uh, there's not too much of evidence of uh, many chartered accountants taking up into the startup world. Uh, But I think what is important is the personality trait more than what the education is. Um, if I if I go back in time, I, I think I always had a flair for doing something new. You know, whether it was in the school, I, I was you know uh, I was I was the head boy in school. I I used to run the culturals in my college. Uh, so I, I guess there is a path and there is a distinction. You know, people people get opportunities to kind of take up different education, but, you know, I guess uh, it, it, uh, it finally matters as to what kind of a personality that you are, right? So that's that's where my journey began. But, you know, I think uh, I, I'm so glad that I spent uh, a good amount of time in Yale University in 2016. I took a break between uh, my last two ventures and before I started Colib. And that actually uh, the... Um, uh, the executive MBA that I took there uh, was was amazing because it, it just helped. So uh, that's probably I was, I took 20 years to go back to school again uh, uh, to take my uh, uh, executive MBA, but probably people have to go back after five, seven years to pick up an MBA because it just gives you that kind of uh, uh, a matured, measured approach towards education. You know, you, you do all your education one shot. I don't think you will be such a well-rounded personality because, you know, when I went back, I met such amazing people uh, back in the university. The way that I connected back with the professors was at a different level because 
it was not about just me learning from them it was about them listening to my uh, 20 years of two decades of experience right i mean my colleagues my uh, fellow students uh, uh, when i was doing my uh, uh, coursework in uh, new haven in in the us it was it was amazing it was a different kind of an experience so for me i think that's the perfect thing you uh, your personality actually determines where you end up in your professional career it's not your academics uh, your academics actually uh, makes you sound uh, in terms of your you know what you want to do in your future but i think it is very very important for you to do your academics in two installments not everything at once that's that's what i would say in a, in summary no that, that's that's really insightful so uh, suresh you know, let's come to the particular startup that you are doing now so uh, can you just give us you know a little more background about colive how this has started out i saw that you know you were doing artha and then colive happened and then you know it just kept on happening it went on to become the mainstream thing so how did it venture out over there yeah i think uh, as i was mentioning to you i think it's uh, you know to me uh, uh, let me just go back in time a little bit you know from remit to india let me connect the dots as to how we, i landed up in colive remit to india you know we were we were almost doing about 2 billion dollars of remittances annually and most of the money was not actually coming in for uh, family maintenance it was coming in for real estate investments and that's when i thought that you know listen there is no point just making money in uh, in the money transfer business but you know let me show them how to deploy this 2 billion dollars as well in india and that's how real estate happened you know from a financial services and an internet company into a real estate happened because i thought that there was an opportunity for me to make few more bucks few more dollars by showing them where to invest and when i started showing them where to invest uh, one of the journey that led this uh, was people started asking me listen okay i can deploy my money into real estate but who's going to take care of my real estate right and that's when i thought that yes in india organized property management companies are not there you buy a home you are in delhi today you buy a home you get transferred to hyderabad what happens to your delhi home who takes care of it you know earlier it was very easy to call your uncle your cousin to take care of it but now you know a professional life that we lead we don't want to go back to you know uh, mom and pop and you know try and fix issues so there is no professional property management company which is what is preventing people from scaling up making real estate investments today and that was my realization and i said that listen you know which is the category which will go after real estate investment i think you know at some point in time reits will become mainstay uh, even in residential property even in you know rental uh, properties uh, re- rental residential properties and you know until for all that to evolve i think it's important to have a property management company a property management company is someone who uses technology to maintain the facilities and most importantly ensure occupancy and then i realized what is which is the segment which actually will drive occupancy in a residential real estate the segment actually is the students the segment is actually the migrant workers the segment is actually the migrant professionals who are coming into urban cities the segment is actually young couples who have not yet purchased a house so what happens is from the age group of 18 till say about 34 35 18 to 22 you are a student in a new city you have just moved out of your home you want someone to take care of your house you want to be, live in a house uh, you know 18 to 25 you have just taken up a new job you are in the new city you want you want uh, you want everybody uh, you you want the safety net you want the you want food to be taken care of etc etc 25 to 29 you just arrived in life you have suddenly seen money uh not yet enough money to buy a house but you know you just want you know some kind of a luxury you need to be pampered because you've started you know having some savings 29 to 32 33 you just got married you are a young couple your husband and wife are working uh, and you don't want to you know you don't want to take on the burden of managing a house or you are not yet ready to buy a house so this is the target segment that we went after and we said that listen these are the target segments who will actually take up rental housing in an urban market and that's how we came up with an idea of co-living i mean you'll be stunned right today co-live is such a co-living is such a main street everybody talks about that why don't we do why don't we uh, take up a co-living 
four years ago or you know four and a half years ago when we started colib.com was available for 99 dollars i mean so that you know literally it wasn't it wasn't established not only in india but across the world which is why .com .in everything was available right so that's how the world and the landscape changes dramatically you know five years later 2025 or maybe 2027 people will be you know obviously this will be the only way people will live right and these changes happen in our lifetime we don't even realize it but it it happens you know today i keep giving this example every time i speak the television screen the television you know at one point in time i had six televisions in my house today not even a single television is in a work i i don't use even a single television right you know television has become obsolete because you want to watch it on an ipad you want to watch you know watching has become so personal everything has changed so dramatically everything will change and we won't even realize so living also will change in the next 5 7 years so much that people won't go look beyond co-living as a segment uh, uh when they move into a new city no oh, that that sounds interesting uh so suresh you know we recently had uh, mr mohit narula on the podcast who is the founder and ceo for columbia pacific communities who focus on a community co-living yeah, for sure so you know we we'll have to just you know people who are in their late 60s who are not living over. with their families anymore click on the click on the link and get back to the or somewhere else yeah. so uh, how do you see that you know co-live columbia pacific communities all these organizations are contributing to the real estate segment that is also started now okay i think it's a perfect thing right i mean to me um, i i have a beautiful slide unfortunately this is an audio show but i would have loved to present that otherwise you know it, it's a life cycle right um, uh, let's take let's take this properly uh, in in a normal manner 0 or 1 to 18 until your high school you live with your parents after that you move into a college you move into your first job you get married and then you buy your house you get your children and then the children when they reach 18 they go out and then you become you know empty nesters so this is and then you again want to go back into a co-living facility so i think it's a perfect thing 1 to 18 you live with a uh, with your family which is in the us in the western world it's called a multi family accommodation where mm-hmm. there are multiple generations which actually live in in the same household 18 to 22 you live in a hostel 22 to 29 you live in a co-living facility 29 to 35 you live in a rented accommodation 35 to 60 you live in your own home 60 onwards you live in senior citizen co-living communities not assisted living but then you know then you move into an assisted living probably after 80 and all these are different segments of real estate right one size does not fit all you know between the your peak of consumption of real estate is between the age of 35 to 60 where you want a big house you want to show off you you have a bedroom for your children you have a bedroom for your parents you have a master bedroom for yourself you have a guest room there is a certain segment now that segment you cannot then make Uh, uh you know you cannot consume it when you are 70 because you don't want to maintain that house which has got five bedrooms and it's got a great lawn and it is your your master bedroom is on the first floor and you have to climb up the stairs right these are challenges so what happens is between the age group of 35 to 65 is what when you consume your own real estate and otherwise you are in a rented real estate because the size keeps changing it keeps shrinking or expanding depending on your status in life you know when you are in college you are probably in a dorm then you move into the final year of college you move into your own room when you are taking up your first job you are in a double occupancy when you settle down you move into a single occupancy real estate cannot shrink based on your desires right which is why rental real estate as a category has to get established now the sooner the developers the investors the fund houses realize this the better it is for the world right you cannot make one size and make it fit for all the consumption patterns are very very different based on the life states that you are in and you cannot given the liquidity in the market real estate is defined as a illiquid asset it is not like mutual fund that i put a i go into an icicidirect.com punch in two days later money comes in mm-hmm. it never happens in real estate 
You know, the earliest that can happen is two months for real estate. The earliest, if you are the most lucky. So how do you, how do you create flexibility in real estate? Which is what is the role of what we call buy-to-let. Products have to be, one is buy-to-consume. You buy because you want to live there and you want to consume it. The other category, which is very popular, especially in the uh, UK markets, is buy-to-let. You build with a purpose to be let it out. So it is called also PBA, purpose-built accommodation. Hmm. So these categories of real estate have to start coming into India. And they are already coming in. It's just that, you know, real estate in India has been going through a lot of tough cycles. The interest costs, the, you know, the interest costs are so high in India that we are not able to create different products here. The expectation for capital is nothing less than 15% in double digits, right? So that's where the problems are. That's where we, we have challenges. But I think it's a slow process. It will happen that there is going to be a separate category, which is already, you know, so for that category to be created, you need operators, you need brands, which will manage such facilities, property management companies. So I think the advent has already happened. Make sure, you know, branded operators have started coming in. So like the hospitality assets, like the retail mall assets, uh, like the commercial real estate has seen so much of an action in the last 15 years, I think time will soon come for, uh, you know, alternate asset classes. So, uh, Suresh, you know, here is an interesting thing that, that just came to my mind. You talked about, you know, remit to India when you were, you know, working around that, you were getting some money from offshores and, you know, getting them back to families here. Now, you saw an opportunity that people want to invest in real estate. Here in India, you know, you also see that one of the, you know, the, the only thing that most of the people know about investing is to go and purchase, you know, some plots, properties, flats like these. So how do you see the amalgamation of these two things that, you know, suppose that someone in the offshore wants to invest back in India, they give remit to India some money and the remit to India, you know, purchases some property on their behalf and then Kohli manages that property to let it out to other people. So how, how do you, you know, see this ecosystem being built out? Uh, very interesting question and that's how I saw this entire chain in my life cycle in the last 20 years or so that you know money will come in it will come into regulations have to evolve money will money is there the consumer demand is there real estate has to be purchased in you know fraction the fractional ownership has to become organized and legal and reliable mm-hmm. all the three have to come together it has to become organized it has to become legal and it has to become reliable because the reason one actually links to the other, right? I mean, people, people are not trusting this fractional ownership because, you know, the same piece of land is sold to five people and it creates a, you create a scam out of it, right? Mm -hmm. Because there is nothing to actually physically control it. So there is a thousand square feet house and there are three owners. Right, and the, the, someone in between has taken money from three guys and said that this belongs to you. So the reliability, the organized way, and the legalization of this entire fractional ownership is the most important step towards success of re- retail consumer money flowing into creating rental assets. So money is there. Money is sitting on the fence. Retail consumer money is sitting on the fence. What is going into mutual funds? The same. And in fact, more is available for real estate because real estate as as an asset class is very, very close to every Indian individual's heart. They don't, you can't take away real estate from an Indian. Yeah, even, you know, I I had a discussion, you know, with my family members because I was urging them that, you know, we can leave this house. So the house that I currently live in is a smaller one. So I was just urging them to know, why don't we shift to a bigger house? The rental is just going to be, you know, 50 to 60K per month. And we can shift to a, a much bigger house and earn, you know, some money from here, which is going to be in the range of 20 to 30K for letting it out to other people. But, you know, this is a particular mindset that all uh, we Indian have. That, you know, agar jana hai, to apne ghar mein jana hai. That is the kind of mindset that we all have, that if we want to, you know, Yeah. Oh, Mm-hmm. 
yeah so this is something that you know that i understand but what about you know the families that are over there so my mom you know doesn't understand this concept she directly say that you know i am just in this house if you want me to move out you have got to purchase an another one i'm not going to go in a rental one now so how do you see that you know co live uh, co living you know can totally disrupt this mindset if the particular legalization standardization of you know the retail money going into the bigger properties you know is done see again i'm just going back to the life stages right mm-hmm. there is a, there is actually even today there is everything is dependent on demand and supply is there demand for rental housing in urban markets the answer is yes as a family you will never move into a rental housing because always the aspiration is to buy your own house your the age group that you are talking about is the 32 33 35 plus up to that age of 65 they want to live in their own house right mm-hmm. but when you move into a newer market you are always looking at rentals is there enough supply of that rental housing the answer is no that is why there is a demand supply mismatch and that is where the retail investment money will flow in at one point in time i had seven houses there was only one house that i lived in there are six houses that i had purchased and which i used to manage by doing it by putting them out on rent i wish there was a real estate mutual fund where i could have just put the money in and i could have earned the returns and exactly. yet had this, a this this was the thing that you know that i was just talking about that that how do you see you know the market can be evolved into that once suppose you know the legalization is there the particular standardization of process is done all the compliance everything you know suppose that this has been managed hypothetically so how do you think that you know the market can be evolved is this going to be you know a plug and play model like uber and ola that you know you just buy a particular car put put it out on ola get a particular driver to you know just flow it around so how do you think that you know the market dynamics will change so that's what I, uh, again you know once assuming that there is a legalization of this entire transaction who are the important stakeholders for this important stakeholders are one a consumer with or a retail consumer with money number one he is the starting point for us second is there is a legal vehicle where he can cut the check and put the money into right because that that is very very important third is the deployment of from that legal vehicle into a real estate asset which is reliable and which actually earns that kind of returns right so there is a real estate company that actually develops this kind of an asset which is good for this kind of an asset class fourth there is an operator who manages that asset class the guy who actually uh, buys this asset class right uh, or the guy who is actually develops this asset class is not going to be able to manage it so which means an operator like colim and five there is a person who finally consumes this real estate these are the five stakeholders who have to come together to create this product right so it's very important that the evolution happens with all these five stakeholders moving in the same direction so until 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 even about 5 years ago there was not even a single operator there was always demand there was always money on the other side but in between there are those three elements which are very very important so there is one end which is the consumer retail money which is available on the other side of the uh, pyramid there is always the tenant who wants to consume this kind of assets but there was no this asset class this asset class was not developed this asset class was not managed by operators and there was no legal vehicle to put the money in so the in between steps of 2 3 and 4 are getting evolved at this point in time and i don't see uh, you know uh, very long from now that we this will become completely legalized you know reliable and uh, a trustworthy way of investing as well as consuming Oh, that that sounds great. So, uh, Suresh, you know, here we'll be arriving at an at a very interesting point where you know there will be six questions of five side chat where you know you'll be having two options to choose from, and you can you know you just got to pick one of them and you know give a small justification that you know why do you think that that is right. Yeah. So, sounds good. Say, yeah. So, uh, yes. Suresh, you know, when we talk about the initial days of a business, what do you prioritize more, keeping ethics or keeping growth? Sorry, I I uh, your voices. hello yeah is it good i repeat that again yeah so i was saying that you know in the initial days of the business what do you prioritize more ethics of an organization or you know the growth growth 
and how so? No, no, growth, growth is important, right? You know, you, there is no point in having a small business. You need to focus on growth. Growth is crucial. Unit economics are crucial, but growth comes priority. If, see, top-line growth is an answer for every misery that you have as an entrepreneur. If, you, if your business keeps growing, which means that consumers are liking you, then all the other problems will come uh, and they will get resolved. But if you don't have consumers and if you have money in the bank, there is no, I mean, there's no business. You're just sitting there. Uh, so Suresh, you know, uh, what do you prioritize more? An amazing investor with a lot of money or an amazing co-founder? I think an amazing co-founder will finally take you to an amazing investor. So I think you'll, you'll always need, it's not just about an amazing co-founder. I think it has got to do with an entire amazing team. Your amazing team will end up taking you to the next level, which will ensure that whether you need, whether you get an investor or not, you are profitable. Your, your all your focus areas are taken care of, and that person is as passionate as you are. Most important, they have to have the same kind of energy levels. Whether it's the co-founder, whether it's the entire team member, the core team member, they have to believe in the concept as much as you do. And they have to be as passionate and as driven as you are. Only then this will be successful. Uh, in my life, you know, uh, even when I was with Citibank before Remit to India, uh, a bunch of Citibankers, all of us started something called E2K Technologies. This was in 2000. And it was really sad that, you know, we couldn't take it off uh, in a big manner uh, because the only thing that didn't click for us was our ego. Uh, uh, and, and now when I look back, and in, in fact, all of us are still very good friends. And this was an idea which was almost like a Zomato of what it is today. And we keep we keep having a big laugh saying that, you know, listen, we, we didn't know who will lock the office. We, will, we didn't know, you know, whether people will come on time, who will take notes. You know, these kind of silly issues that happens between immature founders causes a lot of downfall. So I think having great founders, great core team members is far more important than uh, than money. Of course, money is important, but it will follow. So uh, for a business, what is you know more crucial? Having an amazing product or having some amazing operations? Amazing product. Uh, uh, amazing product, which is packaged well. You know, operations you can buy. Product you need to build. Right. And, and when it comes to product, you know, uh, what do you, you know, uh, is aspiring more, a quality product or you know, a product with more and more quantity features? Quality is important. You can never compromise on it. But I think it's very important to have a product that uh, uh, that is liked by your consumers. A lot of times, what happens is, you know, again, my Citibank example. Citibank used to sit. Uh, product managers in Citibank used to sit in one corner office and come up with products which the consumer never uses, right? It has to be with your ears to the ground, your eyes right there as to what the consumer wants. And that's what you need to build. And that's what is important. A consumer-focused product uh, obviously is far more critical for the success of a business than anything else. Okay. So profitability versus sustainability. What do you think you know, drives the business more? Obviously, if you're very profitable, you know, you sustain, right? I mean, uh, you know, one leads to the other. Profitability leads to your sustainability. But my advice to entrepreneurs is never give up. There will be a time to, for everything. Uh, you just need to hang in there. You have to have a lot of patience. I've talked about many P's. Uh, uh, first, I, 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 my biggest, biggest important P is always product. The second one is packaging. But I always also advise that patience is a very, very important virtue. As, a, uh, as an entrepreneur, uh, as a startup professional, I think it's very important for you to have patience. Not every day will be a good day. Four out of five days in the week are going to be bad. You have to have the mental strength to just hang in there. right? You have to believe that today is not the day, but that Friday is going to be the day when you start off on Monday. So that you can survive the week. So and, and on a Friday, you have to think that next Monday is going to be the day. So 
I guess you have to you have to take it by the way. So, what about you know when we talk about just keeping these patients and everything? What do you think you know is is more crucial, having a long term vision or having some short term goals? You know, I I think uh, I think it's I mean you might find it funny. You might have I keep using this all the time. You can never go to the second floor without building the ground floor. You can never go to the tenth floor without getting to the seventh floor. This is simple logic, common sense. People don't use it. They all have some great vision. They say, they, you know, when you start a company and you'll just say, "Acha, kya karna hai tere ko? Acha, mere ko Facebook banana hai." Arey, I wish life was so easy, right? There are so many factors that are going into becoming a Facebook. So, you know, I think. as a startup guy you need to be first focused on your short term thing you have to get your basement right you have to get your ground floor right don't don't think that i'm talking like a real estate guy but you know that's what you know when you travel in an elevator you have to go ground first second third and then reach the pinnacle you can't get to burj khalifa on the top without building the rest so so i guess that's very important so suresh you know it has been an amazing discussion and you know as i mentioned that most of our listeners are aspiring entrepreneurs or you know people who are just starting out with their careers that the, the young ones who really you know try to gain some insight so you know any kind of advice or any kind of recommendation that you would have for them yeah as i as i mentioned i think uh, it's very important uh, that uh, you know the decisions that you take i mean for me it is a as i started off uh, the 12b kind of a decision uh, metrics is very very important Uh, as entrepreneurs as startup people i don't think we should be struggling with you know what is what decisions you have already taken you have to start moving on you have already taken a decision you have reached the next level you need to now progress at that level and figure out what are the decisions at this point in time you cannot keep brooding over the past decisions there's no point brooding over spilt milk you need to be focused on what is accurate at this point in time you have to move with the time no that that was amazing suresh so suresh you know thanks a lot for getting on the legend show it was amazing you know spending this time with you and gaining these insights yes thank you uh, vishesh i think uh, you've been very smart in terms of picking up the right questions uh, uh, you know it wasn't rehearsed and i think it was it was on the flow it, it just came out very well i'm very glad and happy that you guys are taking this effort to put together this kind of a show and i'm sure that you know young entrepreneurs will listen to this and hopefully benefit out of it uh, do let me know uh, how do we uh, subscribe and get on to it i'll be happy to listen to uh, anything that comes up in the future as well yeah thank thanks a lot suresh thank you